Every single night, the same arrangement. I go out and fight the fight. Still, I always feel the strangest estrangement. Nothing here is real, nothing here is right. I've been making shows of trading blows, just hoping no one knows that I've been going through the motions, walking through the part. Nothing seems to penetrate my heart. I was always brave and kind of righteous. Now I find I'm wavering. Crawl out of your grave, you find this fight just doesn't mean a thing. She ain't got that swing. Thanks for noticing. She's pretty well with fiends from hell, but lately we can tell that she's just going through the motions, faking it somehow. She's not even half the girl she. Hello, everyone, and welcome back at last to the very, very delayed Conversations with Dead People, a postmortem podcast on the works of Joss Whedon. My name is Paul, and I'm your host, and I'm typically joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia as we make our way through the critically acclaimed series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and its spin-off series Angel. I have tried over the years to keep this show running on something vaguely resembling an almost regular schedule, but uh, then the holidays and other uncomfortable real-world inconveniences got in the way, so here we are, three dang months later since our last episode uh, and i owe all of my regular listeners a huge apology since i didn't make any official announcement that there was going to be a hiatus and anyways so the powers that be willing there won't be a banger in the mash quite that extreme for the rest of our run through buffy uh but Speaking of Buffy, uh, we're making our triumphant return to the airwaves with the practically perfect in every way seventh episode of season six, Once More with Feeling. Uh, and joining me to talk about this Mary Poppins of Whedonverse episodes is my friend and oh-so-painfully-frequent podcast co-host Arlo Wiley. Hey, everybody. Hey. How's it going, man? Uh, it's it's going well. Uh, you said there hopefully won't be any... Um large bangers in the mesh and besides the innuendo that i desperately want to pick up on but apparently this is a family podcast um this episode once more with feeling is filled with bangers paul it really is um i don't think we need to worry about innuendo because uh once more with feeling features the song under your spell that is true that is true which is it, it also feel features xander doing the the safe for tv buffy version of a scene from Magnolia. Magnolia, yeah. <laughs> so innuendos are uh, approved for at least this episode of Conversations okay. with Dead People. Uh, man. Okay, so um, Arlo and I were just talking off mic about how um, like we've both, we have each seen this episode many, 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 many times over the years. Um Plus, I've been to many Slayage conferences, and it seems at times like uh, this episode, Conversations with Dead People, I'm sorry, not no, not this podcast. Nobody cares about the podcast. Once More with Feeling is about half of what anybody talks about at the Slayage conferences. That's unfair and untrue, but it's a very popular subject. So um, Arlo and I are under no illusions that we're going to be, you know, blazing new territory or breaking new ground in our discussion of this uh, mostly we're just going to talk about how awesome we think it is. And um, if one of us accidentally happens to say something intelligent, then that's a bonus. It's a, it's always a bonus when 
either one of us managed to say something intelligent, it, let's it, be honest. It really is. It really is. So, um, all right, let me, uh, th this may run long because it is one of our favorite episodes, but, uh, who knows? We may, it may just boil down to us saying, yeah, this is, this is really cool. All right. So next week, uh, anyways, let me get, uh, spoilers out of the way. The spoiler warning, um, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. Uh, we're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and a lot of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once, press pause, please go do that. Uh, and then come back and find us when you're ready. Um, I'd also be fascinated to hear from any listeners uh, if you want to reach out to us at uh, conswithdead at gmail.com uh, and let me know if this episode, Once More With Feeling, is the only episode of Buffy that you have ever seen. I know those people exist. So if you're one of them, please let me know. <laughs> yeah, so I actually, um, uh, maybe that's a good starting point for the conversation. All right. For for this particular conversation with dead people. Um so Buffy is, well, I, I want to say it's weird, though I guess compared to um, most dramas, TV dramas today, which are much more serialized, it's, it's kind of in the same boat. But unlike a lot of the shows that were airing around the same time as Buffy, there isn't really a great introductory episode because... I feel like the best episodes of Buffy, the ones that really like knock your socks off and make you realize what a tremendous show it is, are ones that are very dependent on your knowledge of the show and its characters. Right. So they're, they're you know, it's not like um, X Files where you can just uh, throw out uh, Clyde Bruckman and be like, it's a great episode. You don't need to know anything else about the show. Um, Buffy's a little bit different in that respect. And I'm really surprised that once more with feeling, which to me is obviously it's one of the best episodes of the show, but I feel like you're not really going to get much out of it beyond a surface level without knowing these characters and exactly what it is they're singing about and how all of it fits into the greater whole. But Apparently, like this, this is one of the ones that get people to watch the show. Like you, I know people who have either only seen this episode, or this was the gateway episode for them. And I guess maybe it just, it just does all boil down to, on the surface, you know, disregarding everything else, on the surface, this is just an exceptionally well-made piece of television. Yeah, um, I mean, on the subject of starting with once more with feeling. Uh, a, a recent guest, well, I mean, relatively speaking, a recent, one of my recent guests, uh, Faith Current, uh, she insists that um, she has found in her own life and her, the way she introduces um, newcomers to the show, she insists that you start with season six and follow all the way through to the end of the series and then go back to the beginning, which still boggles my mind. That, you... that is fascinating to me. I, w I would not recommend that, but if that works, uh, uh, you know, then maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, she swears by it, but uh, so, I mean, you know, different strokes for different folks, but uh, anyways, uh, yeah, so um, the the meat and potatoes of this, uh, written and directed by Joss Whedon, I believe the only episode in season six directed by Joss Whedon? 
I believe you're right, yeah. Um, yeah, so it originally aired on November 6, 2001, and uh, the guest cast featured, um, well, primarily Hinton Battle, a three-time Tony Award-winning stage and stage and screen musical icon Hinton Battle as the Demon Suite, who was not named on screen, but is named in the credits. Um, and then, of course, David Fury and Marty Noxon. Oh, what can I possibly say about Marty Noxon at this point that won't get me into trouble? Um, yeah. H- have you waded into those waters already on the podcast? I mean, just the tiniest bit. Just the tiniest bit. The tiniest bit. bit. The tiniest bit. I, I, steps. I, don't, I don't intend to... Unle- I've probably softened in my stance over the years, although not entirely. Uh, but still, I don't think it's worth my time or anybody else's to hear my... <laughs> my unpleasant opinions about Marty Noxon's contributions to this series. Um, I, I will just note that uh, it is significant in my opinion that uh, her musical number, however brief it is in this particular one, uh, is her trying to get out of a traffic ticket by informing the officer that she's not wearing any underwear. Which, of course, um, you know, most of her significant plot lines are about sex in or some about, way are about sex in general and often twisted or dangerous unconventional non-vanilla sex <laughs> and and so i mean i mean I, may, maybe by network tv 2001 standards uh not wearing underwear to get out of a traffic ticket is non-vanilla but right right i know it's yeah. it's super tame but anyways i just thought it was it's it was worth pointing out at least to me and what i love about that line though is that you can't really hear it i know <laughs> just watching the episode it's not until you uh listen to it on the soundtrack and then every time since i've been able to hear it in the background yeah i had to strain real i'd forgotten how how sort of covered up and, and lost in the mix it is in the actual show so. It's kind of like when you're listening to Hey Jude, somewhere around the 250 mark, John Lennon says fucking hell in the background. <laughs> um, and you can't hear it unless you're looking for it, but it's there. Unless you know it's there. And now everyone knows it's there. And now knows everyone knows it's there. there. At the 250 mark. So. At the, at the, around the 250 mark. So the now Beatles. I'm, now, I'm gonna have, now I'm going to have to drop that segment of the song into the middle of the podcast <laughs> right here for, for no apparent reason. Uh, anyways. All right. So the the gimmick of this episode gimmick is is dismissive but the the shtick that is going on in this episode is it's kind of similar to uh the previous uh highly acclaimed critically acclaimed i want to say award-winning but i don't think that's true um no maybe it is maybe it's one of the very few episodes of buffy that won an award a uh, hush um, i know it was i know hush was nominated for nominated uh, a best writing emmy the okay. only time joss whedon has ever been nominated for his writing at the emmys which is baffling and it didn't win i don't think it's ever won a best writing so. no at any rate no. um my so, guess is the west wing won that year pro- probably that's my that's my guess i'm probably right that's an I'm educated guess yeah um <laughs> yeah so that episode was another um joss whedon tour de force uh that broke sort of the conventions of this of the regular television series in as much as there are conventions on this show uh by um, magically taking away everybody's voice. So the entire episode was um, almost entirely dialogue free and it was extraordinary. And so Joss for years has wanted, had wanted to do a musical episode uh, and he'd threatened his cast and uh, fellow creators for years about getting it done. But his schedule was so tight uh, that it just uh, couldn't happen. So he finally took some time. He took six months away from production of the show to go and, uh, 
write and compose and and get this stuff together and then he brought it back to the cast and they were they thought he was insane but here we are so the gimmick is that um in this episode everyone is magically rendered musically adept well almost everybody willow's not quite musically adept but uh yeah everybody is kind of forced to sing their true and secret feelings um most people probably wouldn't guess just from watching it, but um, well, Anthony Stewart, Anthony Stewart Head was overjoyed. He'd been put, he'd been also pushing Joss to do a musical thing for years. And as we've we've seen on the show already, Anthony Stewart Head is a great singer. Right. Um, I mean, though James Marsters has had or has his own rock band. Um, this is a quote from uh, 2012. Uh, sourced from Wikipedia because I have no standards. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, it's obvious now that they were good songs, but the thing was, Joss and his wife Kai, they don't sing very well and they don't play <laughs> piano very well. The song sounded really cheesy and horrible. We were saying, Joss, you're ruining our careers. <laughs> so I absolutely adore um, James Marsters and obviously for more than just Spike, who I, whom I adore, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I love James Marsters. Um, and he's a lovely man in person. I've had the, the joy of meeting him, but, um, I've also seen him perform live, uh, with his band, uh, ghost of the robot, I believe is the name of his band. And, um, I yeah, have, yeah. I have no idea if he still performs with that band, if he still does music to this day. Um, but at the time that I saw him, they were not good. <laughs> Um, I've, I've listened to the one or two albums they put out back yeah. in the day. And I, I gotta be honest. Yeah. I, I was not a fan. I mean, they're better than me. So who am I, oh, well, to, who I am mean, I to absolutely. talk? But yeah, I, I, <laughs> I wasn't a fan being By in the way, ghost of the robot uh-huh. are still active. Okay. All right. I, I have featured one of their songs as the closing tune of one of the episodes of conversations with dead people, though I do not remember what it was. So he's made the cut at least once on this podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Moving um, on. Um, yeah. Sarah Michelle Geller has been very vocal about the fact that she um, she hated. In fact, she told the BBC she hated every moment of it. Mm-hmm. Um, she was very reluctant to. She, she was very against the idea of doing a musical episode. Um, until. Until Whedon uh, suggested they could use a voice double. And she she said that, um, I mean, here's another quote. I basically started to cry and said, you mean someone else is going to do my big emotional turning point for the season? In the end, it was an incredible experience, and I'm glad I did it, and I never want to do it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've, I've heard um, different versions of the reason that uh, Allison Hannigan wasn't made to sing more than like barely a line or two in a couple songs. Uh, her most significant contribution musically to the episode is the line. I think this line is mostly filler. I mean, um, my guess, my, my guess would be, and I've, I've heard this before, but I would imagine it's just because she's not a good singer. She, right. I mean, however, many of them weren't and they went through, I think they said it was six months. I don't remember the time frame now, but there was an extended period of, of vocal training that most of the cast went through. So, I mean, Alison Hannigan could have, and maybe did, I don't know, but could have participated in that. Anyways, the two versions I've heard is one that she just flat out refused. Like she put her foot down and said, no, Joss, I'm not, 
I'm not singing, so you'll have to work around me. And the other is that she, and this sounds much more believable, is that uh, she kind of just begged him uh, with her big uh, Willow Rosenberg puppy dog eyes, please, please don't make me sing on camera. <laughs> so at any rate, she has like one full or two full lines of lyrics and then that's it. But <laughs> So I would say, and, and I'll get this out of the way so that we can talk about the actual episode but i would say the best singers of the cast are anthony stewart head obviously right emma caulfield yes which josh and... said was a pleasant surprise he didn't know she was so gifted with song and dance and, and she's really good yeah. i'm not just saying she, she's not just by the standards of of this show but she's really good um amber benson mm -hmm. and james marsters yeah i think they they are the cream of the crop and if anyone wants to know my personal vocal range, um, I pretty much... Here's, I, here's where you break into song, right? Vocally, I am Nicholas Brendan. <laughs> and that, here's the thing. He's not He's not bad, terrible. He's not necessarily. terrible. He's not that good, but he's not bad. He's so better, he's better at that. singing than he is at dancing. Uh, fair, and so am I. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, I... Uh, the the girl that I was dating uh, back when I was when I was first getting really obsessed with Buffy, uh, we had the uh, the Once More with Feeling songbook. Right. With uh, the 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 cover uh, is the poster illustrated by uh, Adam Hughes, right. comics artist Adam Hughes. Yeah. Um, we had the the songbook, which not only had the full script and some behind the scenes stuff, but also had all of the sheet music. And lyrics and so we would like we basically uh memorized i'll never tell and would do it as a duet together that's so adorable i have to say any whedon any any buffy scholars uh, who have been to a slayage conference uh will tell you that one of the highlights of the event is there's always a a formal dinner evening in the midst of of the conference at some point which features, among other things, um, a musical segment where everybody in, in attendance sings along to all of the songs, the entire soundtrack of Once More With Feeling. And, oh, yeah. Uh, there are a, a handful of very, very talented, uh, musically talented Buffy scholars out there. Um, I would say the vast majority of, of us are not. And so listening to a couple hundred of us <laughs> uh, sing. Under your spell? Sure. Under your spell. Um, in a couple hundred different, you know, tonal <laughs> ranges or octaves. Um, yeah. So, so once more with feeling like sing-along screenings used to be a big deal before Fox. Yeah. Yeah. Put their their iron boot down, and now they're owned by Disney, so that'll never happen again. Yeah. Um, but uh, though, correction, I don't think Disney owns the TV stuff. Do they? So Disney uh, might not own Buffy. I don't know. Not yet. Maybe. <laughs> not yet. I'm sure it's coming. Um, but the only time I went to a sing-along was at the 2008 San Diego Comic-Con. Right. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a lot of fun. I also, that was the summer that Dr. Horrible came out. And so there was also a sing-along for that. And I was surrounded by um, some names that uh, long ago users of Whedon-esque might remember uh quoter gal mm -hmm. sam a twitch one true bix 
Um, I think it, uh, there were others, but I, I don't want to, I'm not sure who, um, but yeah, we were like all sitting together singing these songs. It was, it was a lot of fun. So, so clearly this episode means a lot to me. It, on that note, I, I, uh, but well, before we go any further, I want to mention since you, Arlo, you pointed out uh, that you have no standards and you're getting all your information information from Wikipedia, which is cool because that's how I usually do it too. In this particular instance, uh, I have consulted um, a book called Music, Sound, and Silence in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, which is edited by Paul Antonello, Antonello, excuse me, Janet K. Halford, and Vanessa Knights, uh, and it covers all the various. Uh, instances of song and music and musicality and all that across the series, but there's an entire section of the book dedicated to Once More with Feeling, of course. Um, and one of the things that I sort of discovered or that, that was brought to my attention by reading this book is the odd dichotomy of how joyful we as fans are to like sing along with this, uh, to, to know the lyrics to every song and to, in some wacky instances, even, you know, reenact it or whatever. We find so much joy and communal pleasure in, in sharing our love of this. When in context, none of these songs are joyful for the characters. This is a, this is a terribly, terribly dark. This is a dark moment in the darkest of Buffy seasons. <laughs> That's very true. It's, it's deceptively light and colorful, it, which I think I think Whedon uses those typical aspects of the big Hollywood musical to uh, kind of lay out in stark contrast what these characters are going through. I think, again, on the surface level, I think you can watch this and hear most of these songs and not think, wow, this is really depressing. Um but when you actually, when you know the show, when you know the characters, yes, it's big and bright and colorful and it's a hell of a lot of fun to watch, but these characters are going through some of the worst times in their lives, which is saying a lot for this show. Um, so one thing, uh, when my wife was watching Buffy for the first time a few years ago, um, I was kind of, I was watching it with her here and there. We weren't living together yet. Um, and when we started, you know, really like spending a lot, a lot of time together, um, she was on season six and seven. Um, and one thing I'd forgotten over the years, because in my mind, I'd kind of paired season six and seven together. Yeah. Like in the, in the same boat in terms of quality. I was wrong. Season six, I think, is I'm not going to say it's without its flaws. Uh, it's, it's major flaws. But. I think it is, on the whole, a much better, much more interesting season of TV than season seven, and especially the opening run of episodes. I don't know if you felt the same way, Paul, going through them now, but I especially feel maybe the first half of the season, in particular, is is kind of going from strength to strength. I... Uh... From a certain point of view, I actually agree with you. Um, season six is not, famously, I am not the biggest season six fan. I have some very, or I should say I've had in the past, and we'll see if I still have, some significant issues with 
the course that season six takes and the 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 methods that the the creators use to tell the story but um at a certain point just there arlo you said um in terms of being it's much more interesting and and uh you know uh, unconventional or whatever than season seven absolutely yeah. agree if you look at just season six and season seven um each one has their its strength and weakness but season six is absolutely the mo the more like just interesting it takes the most risks uh it it has the higher high points and maybe the lower low points i don't know but season seven as a whole um i remember just kind of being middling and opinion. you're right. I was actually so for the longest time I've been a, a defender of season seven, but I hadn't actually watched the show in a long time. And watching a, a straight we were on vacation at the time and I think we watched like the second half of the season together. Mm -hmm. And it just is really not that good. Yeah. It's it's not horrible. I, I, th I still think maybe some of the vitriol it gets is a little excessive, but compared to where the show was, even you know around the middle of season six, it's it's a significantly worse show. Um, but but I bring all of that up um, to say that honestly, this episode might be the turning point because um, the, the episode after this Tabula Rasa that's a really good one too. But then I think then is where it kind of starts to slide down a little bit. Yeah, uh, but. Up to this point, I think this has been a really uh, incredible depiction of depression. Yeah. So, so Buffy died at the end of last season. And up until this episode, none of her friends knows that she was either in heaven or something very much like it. Whatever the Buffyverse equivalent of heaven is and since crosses work against vampires maybe it is the the heaven that we think of i've never heard them use the term uh heaven dimension they say hell dimension all the time they don't say hell they say hell dimension but she yeah. specifically says heaven yes <laughs> so. so wherever buffy was she experienced um warmth and love and she finally after years of of struggle she got her reward which was peace yeah and at, she, at one point somewhere i don't think it's this episode but at one point she describes it as she was done yeah she she was done and then which is in, in a meta sense speaks very much to where the show was the show potentially was going to end at season five before upn picked it up for season six and thrown back into harsh reality literally had to dig herself out of her own grave which is a traumatic experience and it's not until Once More with Feeling, the light, happy song and dance episode, where she reveals that to everyone, not just Spike, who she had told previously. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so this is really um, it, it comes really early in the season. But honestly, this is the um, not only is it the high point, I think, in terms of quality of the season, but it's it's the high point in terms of uh emotion and th just thematically the way everything comes to a head here yeah the the darkness and every i mean i just described this as the dark episode of the darkest season of buffy but but really uh everything from this point just gets darker and darker 
they they, yeah. they throw us a, a a yellow colored uh beacon of light <laughs> at the end of the season but for the most part um if it's if, if it's all been fun song and dance up to now boy does it get awkward and uncomfortable <laughs> for the rest of the season it does um yeah so Buffy the Vampire Slayer since the very beginning has been about um, subverting expectations and, and uh, you know, inverting tropes and stereotypes. Uh, traditional, like, movie musicals, traditional Hollywood musicals, um, in those the characters tend to, like, break into song and dance because their feelings are just so overpowering that they they have to be expressed. They can't be held in. They have to be let out. And Typically, not always, but typically, these numbers, these songs are are about love and wonder and desire and and so on and so forth. Um, it is, I mean, there are certainly Hollywood musicals that have sad and depressing songs, but for the most part, it's about uh, you know the the joy and and joie de vivre pouring out of characters. Uh, but it wants more with feeling uh, the feelings that are that have to be sort of exalted or whatever that have to be expressed are dark secrets, hidden shames, doubts, things that normally should not be expressed to your friends. Um, right. Or, or I mean, looked at another way, things that maybe should be expressed right? Uh, for, for the health of a relationship. But, but most people in life and especially on this show do not find that an easy thing to do. It's yeah. Um, one of the strengths of the series has been that almost without us noticing, uh, we've gone from the initial Scooby gang in the early seasons in the first couple of seasons where they're so bonded together. They're so tight knit because of their outsider status, um, that they cling to each other and they share everything. Not true. There were still secrets kept then, but they felt much more communicative back then. Um, and as they've grown older and as each one of them has added more and more layers to their individual lives, um, they've held stuff back from each other more. The secrets yeah. have formed and so on and so forth. And in if they had tried doing this, if they tried um, sort of cresting the wave of all of the emotional secrets that the characters, the place the characters are in at this point in the season, if they'd done it in just a normal episode where they just had everybody like, let's say everyone was locked in a cave by a demon and they just had to fight with each other. They just had to fight it out. If this stuff had been conveyed in normal dialogue, even the, the wonderful uh, Whedon esque dialogue, it just would have been, it wouldn't have been as satisfying. It would have been, I feel like much more clumsy than so the musical trope lends itself to a purity of expression and, I, yeah. I'm going to argue that the musical trope lets us have an even more intimate connection with at least certain characters, I, most oh, yeah. of the characters, uh, than we've gotten to the series uh, in the series up to this point. In the normal format, like we only hear what characters speak aloud to each other or other characters, or sometimes you get the humorous, you know, self-narration as someone's creeping down a back alley. But, but it doesn't feature the sort of televisual equivalent of like a, the comic book thought balloon or whatever. We're not usually privy to the innermost thoughts of these characters. Right. Uh, but here in once more with feeling, um, there are instances where characters are singing introspective solos, which aren't 
overtly intended for the other characters around them to be hurt to, to hear like when when joss is singing uh standing i think is the name of the track standing in your way um buffy is right there with him but she clearly mm-hmm. isn't hearing what he's singing the the spell yeah. allows for an introspective solo to take place um and it, it, and it, and he's singing truth these characters are singing the truth that they experience and so we the audience are given sort of an unfiltered look directly into their hearts and minds that we don't usually get absolutely and i think in that sense we can draw parallels to another of the series best and most format breaking episodes uh restless from the end right. of season four which also which, which also featured a musical moment <laughs> <laughs> it did it's it um it it has uh giles singing as uh the Xander exposition Lowe, song lighter, the exposition song yeah. um uh in that episode we got to see the characters dreams and though they didn't make logical sense they revealed so much about these characters that they couldn't they just couldn't say to one another or reveal about themselves i mean that's the same season that had the yoko factor mm-hmm. where spike um engineers the group's downfall by just getting them to say things to each other yeah um and so in once more with feeling uh we've got buffy singing about how she I mean, she feels like she's going through the motions, to use the the name of the song. Uh, even the um, the uh, I've got a theory. Even the way that ends, Buffy's saying, "You know, there's nothing we can't do if we're together," and she doesn't believe it as she's singing it. Right. It's 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 a group song, but the that sense of the group's unity is a complete lie. Anya. There's a, there's a line in that song in the the I've got a theory or it's actually her part if we're together, um, that uh, what is the line? It's uh, the same old trips. Why should we care? Right. Uh, which is her tipping her hand to yeah. This is it, it's another going through the motions. Right. Yeah. I mean, it sounds and I think the rest of the group picks up on it as as like yeah we've been through this before. Why are we worried? But in reality, she she means it. She, her, her lyrics should be taken at face value. Right. Um, Anya and Xander sing the things to each other that, um, you know, that that in a healthy relationship they would be actually telling each other, but the things that they hate about each other that they cannot bring to say themselves to say. Ironically, in a song called "I'll Never Tell," as they spill all of these secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Spike sings about his hidden shameful love. For Buffy, um, as you already mentioned, Giles sings about the fact that Buffy has grown beyond him. Um, Which is a fear that character has been struggling with for almost two full seasons at this point. Yeah, since season four. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I I think the the only song sung by one of the principal cast that doesn't really fit is uh tara's under your spell she means all of those things genuinely but she doesn't realize that she is literally under a spell yeah though she means the things that she's saying she's under the influence so to speak that that's the first of the the songs that i have a lot of specific notes about and um most of them deal with the fact that uh on the surface this song and it pairs with um 
uh, rest in peace, actually. It kind of mirrors rest in peace. But uh, on the surface, we can take this song as it's, um, it's Tara's coming out, basically, meaning that up to this point, by and large, really all we the fans have really been presented with is Tara as extension of Willow. Like she's introduced... This is a little unfair because she has gotten some characterization. There was the episode family or whatever, but mostly she's been used as sort of the outward manifestation of Willow's sexuality. She's, she's not been given a f very thorough opportunity to be her own individual standalone, sing her own solo sort of character. And that's what this song comes across as, which is particularly painful when the ironic twist is revealed that um, what she is singing is heavily influenced or informed by the fact that she is under a forgetful spell from right. Willow. Her memory has been manipulated. And so she literally is under, under Willow's spell and not in a good way. Yeah. Uh, so even in this moment where Tara seemingly, because Alison Hannigan won't sing because, Ter because Willow doesn't sing, this is a Tara solo and it's sort of her big breakout moment. And we get to see her finally expressing her own agency and ideas, except that they're not really her own agency and ideas. She's been denied true and complete agency by Willow's manipulation. Yeah. And uh, even in I've Got a Theory, she doesn't get to say her theory. Right. She's cut she, off. Yeah. She's cut off by bunnies. Yeah. Which is one of the best moments of the entire episode. Um, yeah. It's this, as you said earlier, this is a dark episode. Um, well, I, okay. So I said Under Your Spell ties into Rest in Peace. The two are kind of mirror episodes because the two couples, I mean, leaving aside the troubled couple of uh, Xander and Anya, the, the two couples at the extremes, literally, because when we see the sort of chorus line, when the characters line up at the end, you've got Spike and Buffy at one end and Willow and Tara at the other end. Um, so the other end of the Willow Tara spectrum is Spike and Buffy. So Rest in Peace is kind of a mirror of that song. Under Your Spell was performed outdoors in broad daylight and it was a sunny, you know, Disney-esque or show tunes-esque love song um, with some very unnecessary emphasis on the pronunciation of complete, but whatever. <laughs> uh-huh. Is this the first um, network television depiction of Cunnilingus? Uh, maybe. Maybe. That, that that apparently no one in standards and practices realized was Cunnilingus? I, I know. The lines spread beneath my willow tree. You make me complete. Managed. Uh -huh. Got in there somehow. But... And, I, and for the longest time, I used to think that, because you know how the the episode hard or not the episode the scene hard cuts before she actually comes yeah um i for the longest time i thought that it cut on the line you make me come and then it but but it doesn't no i, I how perfect would that have been though in my, in my mind i like to imagine there was a world where that happened like that uh -huh. was the first edit that they posited but someone you... finally <laughs> at standards and practices said hold on hold on wait a minute no <laughs> it can't end there. Um, anyway, so yeah, um, under your spell is is broad daylight and and sunny and overtly sexual, uh, satisfyingly sexual, presumably. Although it's cut off mid coitus. Uh, rest in peace is the opposite. It's dark and uh, depressing, and it's Spike railing against the fact that uh, he's, I guess he's kind of under Buffy's spell, but Buffy doesn't care. <laughs> um, yeah. And 
you know, I, it, it's even, it's even kind of staged in a similar fashion. Although, um, Willow and Tara start outdoors and in, wind up indoors, and uh, it's the opposite in Rest in Peace. They begin indoors uh, and end outdoors, but... I had never... You know, all of the many dozens of times I've seen this episode, I never really put that there are, together. There's new stuff every single time. <laughs> and so, I mean, Buffy and Spike and Willow and Tara are the two core couples that a lot of the really dark stuff that happens this season kind of swirl around. Um, obviously Xander and Anya get the show stopping number. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a great number. It's um, the, it's the, it's the very overt Ginger Rogers, Fred Astaire homage. <laughs> right. Even though, as you said before, Nicholas Brendan, not so much of Fred Astaire. It's not Fred Astaire. Yeah. Um, and, and yes, Xander and Anya, I guess Xander and Anya maybe have the most uh, con- conventionally disastrous I, relationship. Yeah, I was going to say the darkness of their relationship winds up being sort of a human darkness. It's one that most of us could at least theoretically relate to, whereas the the other two pairings are very, very supernaturally extreme. Yeah. Um, I had a, I don't know if you had a deeper thought that I cut off there. I didn't. Okay. All right. <laughs> I never do. Um, uh, so let me see. We're kind of into it talking about individual songs. Uh, I mean, I could, if you wanted me to, Paul, I could like break down every single one of these songs and, and, and the actual like numbers that I, I just have what I love so much about them i mean we certainly can do that like i took i wrote extensive notes on a handful of these songs and maybe just a couple of words about others but certainly the ones that always stick in my mind that get my attention there's um the going through the motions uh which i i love in every way but particularly because it ends on the the little mermaid disney moment yes (laughs) which is Features, I think, in arguably one of the greatest vampire dustings that the series ever pulls off. Absolutely. <laughs> because we get the, um, instead of instead of Ariel thrusting her seashells forward triumphantly at the climax as the sea sprays around her, uh, here we get Buffy singing about wanting to be alive as uh, you know, through a cloud of discorporated undead dust. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. I also did, want to point did you out. Just, did you just say the phrase Ariel thrusting her seashells? I absolutely did. I said innuendo okay. was on the table. For <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so on the subject of, <coughs> of um, going through the motions, um, I've tried to watch. I feel like I've done this every time, but, but once again, I tried to watch the headstones. I think I do this every time Buffy is in a cemetery. I look at the headstones behind her to see if there are any in-jokes or whatever. The only one that I caught this time is uh, as Buffy is initially singing and she she stops in front of a headstone uh, when the vampires show up. What's behind her is a, he- a headstone for Ida Mann. That is not where I thought. I thought it was going to be something like, you know, S. Sondheim or something. Not <laughs> no. I mean, that's the, man. that's the kind of stuff I was looking for. And the only thing I saw was, is that like, is that meant to be a joke? Ida Man. But <laughs> I mean, I would. Uh, my my guess is is yes. Anyways, um, so 
yeah. and I, I love that uh, we get a wordless overture which uh, which for the motions. we haven't mentioned this uh on mic yet but there are different versions of this uh episode available uh when it was originally broadcast it ran eight minutes over which arlo i think you told me what that means in actual like minus commercials that's 48 minutes yes um and that's how it was originally broadcast um, and in every in syndication, every rebroadcast, they've cut out those extra eight minutes, which features a lot of baffling, unnecessary and and comp, you know, it excises a lot of lyrics, uh, a lot of character beats. It just cuts stuff that makes it much less cohesive, uh, unsurprisingly. Yes. One of the things it cuts is the overture. I know. It goes from main title just right into when Buffy sings, which... I guess in theory that should work, but man, the overture is one of the best, best things. It's the best lead in to going through the motions. It is. You've got the classic Whedon long takes. Yeah. Um, and you just get a sense of where all of the characters are physically and emotionally at, at, at the moment before they start bursting out into song. Um, yeah, I have actually I've had the pleasure of never having seen <laughs> the oh, edited version, um, so I can't even imagine a version of this episode that just cuts right from the main titles to Buffy in the cemetery. And I don't want to imagine it. Don't don't. Um, it's not I, worth I, it. do, I do know that, um, they, w- one of the lines that they cut, um, is, uh, you know, uh, Don is so excited to to come into the magic shop and tell everyone that they burst into song singing about trigonometry at school. <laughs> and, um, um, when everyone else guesses that, what, what did you sing? Um, she says, no, I gave birth to a pterodactyl. And Anya goes, oh my God, did it sing? That was the best line. I, love that I know. Line. And I, and I know that, that, that gets cut in the edited version. Oh, yeah. So, so basically I know that, um, I think for a time on Netflix after they did the, uh, the regrettable HD remaster, uh-huh. um, I believe they only had the edited version of that episode and on Hulu, I think they may have had it like that for a time, but I can confirm, having just watched it on Hulu last night, that you get the full version there. Right. Yes. Fortunately, which I didn't even think of that when I... Pre- I've been rewatching on Hulu, and I didn't even think that they would have anything but the full version, so... Well, what's very silly, and I know I, I already told you this, Paul, is that I pressed play on Hulu, and then I, I looked over to my DVD shelf right next to the tv it's like i've got all fucking oh oh i'm sorry no 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 no. you you that (laughs) it's already been let out of the cage you already dropped it when you were talking about john lennon oh i sure did didn't i so yeah the rule is broken the rule the the uh this this podcast is no longer safe for work so anyways i looked over to my dvd shelf and realized i I have all seven seasons sitting right there why didn't i just pop the dvd which so do i but I, I'm allowing myself to succumb to the damn millenni- the laziness, the millennial convenience of, <laughs> of yeah. digital streaming. So, anyways, yeah. So, so in, in any case, um, I I love um, that you've got David Fury mm-hmm. singing about mustard, mm-hmm. a very a very colorful number. One thing we haven't mentioned about this episode is uh, the colors. You know, I yeah. said it's it said it's bright and colorful, but I. The, I mean that literally. Um, the episode is, I, I think, on the DVD commentary, which I've not heard in a while. I believe that Whedon says that they worked really hard. They they upped the color saturation 
as much as possible. And all of those colors were really meant to pop because Buffy for as much as I love it. Um, and as much as the show can get inventive with its, you know, camera angles. And like I said, Whedon's use of long takes, I mean, this, the, the photography is often pretty standard. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. But this one, you really like the colors are big and bold and I think it looks really, really nice. And it, it really, that really stands out in a couple sequences. Like I'm thinking particularly of, of under your spell Tara's song. Um, like she sings about, uh, the light on her face and yeah, you know, the sun shines directly on her face. I mean, it's used to a great effect in a few spots, but yeah. Um, yeah. So David Fury sings about getting the mustard out. Um, I, I already talked about the parking ticket song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's there. Um, some of we, we haven't really talked about, I mean, we've mentioned lyrics, but we haven't talked about how genius these lyrics are. So, you already pulled out that Wikipedia quote of how <laughs> James Marster says, yeah, uh, Joss and Kai, not the greatest singers or piano mm-hmm. players. Um, I mean, Joss was a lifelong fan of musicals and Stephen Sondheim and that kind of stuff, but he didn't have, like, like he was not a songwriter. Uh, he basically became a songwriter to do this episode, which right. makes the fact that the, the lyrics are so just incredible i think arguably i think that they work even as standalone songs they obviously work so much better if you have the context and history of the show and the characters but uh, the lyric the the wordplay in the songs is just you know typically brilliant whedon wordplay i think and uh, absolutely one of the greatest lyrics uh are you know perhaps of all time in any genre is his penis got diseases from the Shumash tribe. Come on. <laughs> I know <laughs> working that into a song seamlessly into a song is just brilliant. One of my, one of my favorite rhymes is also from I'll never tell when things get rough. He just hides behind his Buffy. Yes. Now look, he's getting huffy cause he knows that I know. <laughs> so great. So great. Um, and I love um, going back to the staging a little bit. I love in uh, I'll Never Tell uh, the prop newspaper. Yeah. So it's like mayhem in Sunnydale. Monsters definitely not involved, say authorities. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I love that so much. That denial machine is still churning out. <laughs> um, gangs on PCP. Um, <laughs> so um, since we're on I'll Never Tell, we should talk about and, and you just mentioned staging. I mean, I had already said it was the Ginger Rogers Fred Astaire homage, which I'm far from the first person to ever point out. But that does that's not just in the fact that they are singing and sort of acting very Rogers and Astaire-esque. Uh, it's also the physical staging, the clothing that they're wearing. Like Xander is wearing very 30s, 40s masculine silk pajamas. Anya is wearing very 30s or 40s sexy that's not really lingerie, but whatever her pajamas are. So, Plus, she's got the fuzzy so, pink, the the fluffy pink slippers. And so, watching, watching this again with Amber last night, and again, she's seen this multiple times. But I'll never tell comes up, and we see Anya, and she just looks at me, and she's like, "What? 
what is she wearing? <laughs> She's like, it's not even, it's not lingerie. It's not pajamas. It's a bra and a skirt. She's <laughs> like, I would never even think to wear that to bed. At least Xander gets like a, what is identifiably a robe. Um, and Amber pointed this out and I'd never, I don't think I'd ever consciously notice it. Uh, Anya's fuzzy slippers have heels. Yeah. They're, they're, they are the music, the magical musical equivalent of slippers because they of course have to have heels for dancing in. So, so I, I, I tried to explain to her, you know, I, I think this is meant to kind of like be like a fifties musical right. type thing. She was like, okay. Yeah. I mean, even the, the, um, the apartment itself is sort of art deco in appearance. Right. Right. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it's great. And the fact that they fall onto the couch together, sort of laughing into each other's arms. That is very good morning from singing in the rain. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, good call, which only, you know, which only serves to accentuate the scene that immediately follows, which is them not (laughs) laughing and giggling in each other's arms as they're very upset about what just happened. Um, and I love and I, and I, I love Anya's line there about how it's like there weren't it's like our apartment only had three walls and there we were missing the fourth wall and someone was <laughs> watching us. <laughs> right, right. Um and, and that scene in itself is is beautiful because it is it is all one long take. And I love that um very unusually for Buffy, it's kind of shot in uh it's like a medium length mm-hmm. uh shot where we kind of uh, the characters are in the foreground, but we kind of stray from them at times. That's when we get Marty Noxon singing about the parking ticket. You've got the street sweepers in sailor outfits uh, <laughs> dancing. Uh, I just, I, I really love all of that. And Giles mentioning that the police are taking witness arias. <laughs> yes. It's, I mean, how, how brilliant is that? So clever. By the way, that the street sweepers, the, the music that is accompanying their dance in the background is the it's called the broom dance and it's the song that plays over the end credits yeah yeah um so i want to go back to something you had said a minute ago about how whedon wasn't a songwriter Mm -hmm. until this episode he spent six months writing once more the feeling and all of the accompanying music um and i think what really sets once more with feeling apart is that the songs are genuinely really, really good. They're not good for a TV show. They are genuinely really good. And I believe we, I don't know if this was on the commentary or elsewhere, but Whedon had, he'd said at one point that the thing that bothered him about a lot of TV musical episodes is that the characters would sing, but they really wouldn't be singing about anything meaningful they, they they would sing about what was happening in the scene and it revealed nothing nothing greater than that and then they'd move on and, it, and it, the song may, may as well have not even happened um it, they they were very gimmicky to use that word again and so he wanted to make sure that not only were his songs great like broadway musical songs um but that they actually had substance to them and depth uh, which, I mean, uh, the TV musical episode uh, existed, obviously, before this, but I feel like has especially become kind of a cliche in the years since Once More the Feeling. And I cannot think of very many of them that are actually all that memorable. 
I mean, I, I a, few. a lot of a them, a lot of them have happened on shows that I don't watch, so I haven't I haven't seen them. Um, I I just feel like I'm sure there are exceptions to this rule, and if I if I did some research, I would probably agree with some of them. But for the most part, I think uh, once more with feeling has has ruined television musicals for other shows. Uh, it's just it was the the perfect storm. Uh, this is the perfect setting to have this kind of television musical and have it make sense within the context of the series. Other shows either just don't bother to explain it. And it's just like your average musical where there's no explanation for people bursting into song or they struggle to find some, you know, in universe reason why this would be happening. And, right. And it, I I feel like it's more of a struggle for other shows. That said, the there's a show that has just started. It's just aired its first episode and I loved it called Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist featuring um I was going to say Jane Levy, is that it, right? Jane Levy. Yeah, Jane Levy. Yeah, Jane Levy. Um where she we don't know what's going on, but she there's something. She got an MRI. She was feeling sick and she had an MRI and after her MRI, uh she now hears people expressing their innermost thoughts through song nobody else sees this or witnesses it it's just her it's happening in her head but somehow she's able to actually discern their inner thoughts and secrets because they perform musical numbers hmm. um so anyways i'm looking forward to the rest of that show because it was really good but yeah the, the only other tv musical episode uh besides crazy ex-girlfriend which yes. was a fully musical series and honestly i think is is the spiritual successor to once more with feeling Agreed. like there's there's yeah, it, yeah it's a great great show you should watch it um uh, the only other like musical episode of tv that i think i really loved was uh on scrubs i was gonna say scrubs <laughs> like scrubs is i mean it's not the show buffy was right it's I, I i went all the way back through it uh a year or two ago with amber and it's a lot more homophobic than i'd remembered mm. Um, and it, it definitely has its weak moments, but when it's well, good, so, so was Buffy for a time, but well, you're not wrong. Um, but when it's good, it's really, really good. And my musical is honestly like, I give it major props for actually f like the songs actually, they're very funny, but they do actually mean things. And there are musical motifs throughout the episode. And like, yeah, I think that's a really great, uh, musical episode. Yes. Very true. Um, but in any case, back to apparently, apparently, Xena Warrior Princess predated. They had a musical episode um, that predated Once More with Feeling. Uh, I I did not watch Xena, and I have not seen the musical. Um, some people hold it in high regard. I've also heard I've heard a lot of other people say that Once More with Feeling finally solved the problem with a fantasy show's musical. Okay. Um, yeah, but... I mean, there are a lot of them that I've not seen. I, I think the best ones today. Are, are mostly in animation yeah uh like steven universe i know uh, a lot of people love i haven't seen it um bob's burgers has great songs yes <laughs> whenever they do have songs um any case back to once more with feeling yeah um i want to talk about the staging of rest in peace okay um i love how you pointed out the parallels between that and under your spell um, but I also just really love some of the uh, camera angles, like when Spike goes down on his knee, we get like a Dutch angle, mm -hmm. Like, the, but the camera tilts with him, and then it tilts back up at Buffy in the next shot. Um, and I love that there is a funeral procession at night. 
Um, yeah, of course. Just a, it's Sunday a day. random music video funeral. Yeah. Um, I, and- I've, uh, I, I, let me jump in just a second. Something else I learned in the, the music sound and silence in Buffy the Vampire Slayer that I was not previously aware of. And I, I haven't gone back to check. I mean, I trust them, but apparently a lot of that, uh, the funeral at night scene and everything was, um, was a riff on white wedding, the Billy Idol video, um, which of course plays into the fact that spike very much looks like Billy Idol. Ah, okay. But Uh, I'll be honest with you. I obviously, I know the song white wedding. Not sure. I've ever seen the video. I I have seen it probably countless times, but do not, (laughs) do not remember. Didn't make that connection. So, um, I, I will say though, I think, um, that number, as much as I love it, has one of the worst effect shots in the show's history. Uh, uh, which one? Uh, it's when we see Spike's face turn from normal to vampy. Normally, the show's able to pull that off, and it's not too bad. Mm. But for whatever reason, well, I, I know, relatively speaking, it's not that bad. Um, but for whatever reason, it's very clearly... Um, the the nighttime cemetery behind him is very clearly green screen and i, I think yeah. maybe part of the problem with that because i noticed it this time too um I, I think maybe it's that usually when we get that uh transformation scene in an episode the character's not talking um and in this the character spike was singing mid transformation and they tried to match mouth moves between mm-hmm. uh, regular face spike and then bumpy face spike. And they don't usually do that. And I think that just made the transition a little more complex. And so the effects yeah. weren't, weren't up to the task. But. It, it definitely sticks out to me as a, as a bad shot in, in an otherwise great episode. Uh, one of, one of the, one of the bugs that I think is actually a feature of rest in peace is that, uh, you know, Spike is the the punk rock Sex Pistols fan, and this yeah. song is so not a Sex Pistols song. <laughs> right, this is not right. this is not London Calling. Um, but I I think the way I fan wank that into being a feature is that it's another nod to the to the fact that the Spike identity is a mask that he created over the years to conceal and protect the the sort of fragile William hiding inside, and so. Absolutely. You know, he puts on, he probably really does like Sex Pistols. I, I don't doubt that. But this musical is about people singing their inner truths. And so there's a little more William coming out maybe than he would have normally performed. Absolutely. And by the way, real quick, I need to embarrass you. You know, London Calling isn't Sex Pistols, right? I, as soon as I said it. <laughs> okay. As soon as, <laughs> as soon as I said it, yeah. yeah. Okay, just wanted that on the record. Yeah. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so I, that, I think that's an excellent point i think you're absolutely on the money um moving on we get uh don's ballet number michelle trachtenberg was a trained ballet dancer Uh um it's it's one of my favorite sequences in the episode because i'm such a huge dance fan and it's great and i love the 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 minion guys Mm -hmm. that um have the like the pinocchio masks one of my favorite gags in the episode is when spike (laughs) in the back's like little birdie's got a song to sing or whatever and like there's this big musical swell and then he just talks in like the the, like a clipped monotone Mm -hmm, yeah Um, which is a joke that i think a lot of people don't get because i've watched it with so many people and it almost never gets a response i love it but i think it's a great gag um 
what you feel is is a classic. I mean, like you said, Hinton Battle is a stage legend. Oh, that's such a beautiful, beautiful segment. And obviously, part of his magic is that he can tap dance when there are no taps on the bottom of his shoes. Right, I'd, I'd forgotten right. there's a shot where he clearly shows you the bottom of his shoes, and I'm like, well, that's not those are not tap shoes, but whatever. <laughs> it's magic. I love it. I can bring whole cities to ruin and still have time to get a soft shoe in. Yeah, some more of that fantastic oh, wordplay. Just absolutely. Um, when something's cooking, I'm at the griddle. I bought Nero's very first fiddle. I mean, come on, man. It's just fucking great. It is. Um, magic. Yeah, it's great, great number. Um, and then you mentioned standing before. I love that... Uh, that Buffy is moving in slow motion mm-hmm. while Giles moves at regular speed. Which just further serves to demonstrate the disconnect between the two of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're not even existing. They're not in sync. Same plane. Yeah. And the punchline to that scene is um, he finishes this emotional outpouring and Buffy just goes, oh, I'm sorry, did you say something? <laughs> yeah. That's an example uh-huh. of the the magic at play here like i had said earlier it allows certain characters to get their um their uh inner solos or whatever um that aren't meant for other people to hear and i think his song started out that way like he was sort of singing to himself but by the end he was trying to say important stuff to buffy but the magic right. didn't let that happen it was right. it was a a self-contained solo and the character that it was meant for didn't get to hear it so and then that leads immediately into uh, a reprise of Under Your Spell that Giles beautiful. joins. So beautiful. Um, which is incredible and has a beautiful shot of um, uh, Tara in the foreground singing, and then Giles walks into the background, and it's just this beautiful two-shot. Um, I promise I, I, I there is no actual like contract where I have to mention Ingmar Bergman every time I'm on a podcast, <laughs> but Whedon is such a proclaimed fan of Bergman, and so to get uh, a classic two-shot like that, which is very much a, a hallmark of of Bergman, and Bergman um, did film uh, at least one stage musical. Really? Um, yeah, oh yeah, he did a version of, uh, oh my gosh, it was, it was Mozart. Uh, I can't remember it off the top of my head. Uh, the but... Magic Flute? Yes! Um, wow. And it's 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 great. Oh, um, interesting. So, so you may, yeah, so you may just... get me to uh, to revisit Bergman. <laughs> no, I won't. Um, but I, I had to I had to point that out. Um, and walk through the fire. Okay, yeah, let's go there. Walk through the fire is one of the all time great TV sequences. Yeah, in my mind, just everybody comes together for the big group number. Except they just, don't. Except they don't. They're, they're, they're still all... They don't actually come together until where do we go from here when none of them have an answer to anything. Right. Um, but Walk Through the Fire, they're together but not. Uh, and I just I just think it's brilliantly written the way that the themes and motifs weave in and out, um, how characters who are not physically together are still singing in tandem i'm thinking especially of when you have uh spike and sweet mm-hmm. yeah kind of uh harmonizing almost course. yeah uh, harmonizing yeah um it's just brilliant and again the the staging of it one of my favorite moments and it because it's the big moment of um uh, at least until buffy says that she thinks she was in heaven it's the big emotional release of the episode 
Um, do they keep singing, you know, walk through the fire and let it, yeah. and then it goes to the next character or verse. This is the but same then, moment I wanted to comment on, yeah. Yeah, but then when they say walk through the fire and let it burn, in the background behind the, the group, just a fleet of fire trucks passes by. I get chills. I get chills it's, at that moment every time. It is so... It's so... It, it's just such a brilliant moment. I, I have not read anything or, or, or listened to the commentary, so I don't know if this has been addressed somewhere, but... It seems I would love to believe that that was a coincidental cor- bit of like timing and choreography, but oh, it no, can't no, possibly no. be. And I and I wonder how many times they they had to run that shot so that everybody hit their <laughs> hit their musical mark at just the moment that the fire engines like blaze by. Right, right, right. So beautiful. Oh, it's so great. Uh, another detail that I learned from this book is that the arrangement of "Walk Through the Fire." Uh, apparently opens with the same guitar notes that open the Simon and Garfunkel song, the sound of silence, which of course is oh. famously about failed communication. I can, I can, in my mind, I can hear that right yeah, now. Yeah. As, as I read that, I was like, is that true? My gosh, that seems like it must be true. <laughs> but, I don't know if that's something he would have consciously done or if it's yeah. just happens to be a happy coincidence, but yeah. Yeah. yeah wow. I can hear that. Um, then we go into something to sing about which is the climax of the episode. Mm-hmm. And I think it's... Since Under Your Spell didn't actually get a climax. Well, true. Um, it's the... Finally, we get satisfaction. It's the, it's the money shot of the episode. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Let's put the family-friendly sticker back on. Uh, any case, uh, something to sing about, I think, is brilliant on a number of levels. Um so we get oh and a major piece of the episode that we we haven't even mentioned yet is that the literal danger of people yeah. singing their hearts out is that they combust yeah yeah they so, literally cannot handle the outpouring of emotion so obviously we're going to need to talk about xander before we're done with this podcast yes <laughs> but let's continue <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um something to sing about um has so it's it gets to be a great fight scene. Mm-hmm. Um, not a, as much as I love Buffy, not a lot of the hand-to-hand fights are great. This one, by virtue of being a choreographed dance, right? It's great. Um, you've got Buffy using the pool cues to stake, or well, I guess she's not really staking; she's just straight up stabbing them. Um, but uh, it's great. I like um, the left-handed, almost behind her back throw of the final piece of a pool cue. Yeah, it's yeah, it's awesome. Um, then you've got uh, the the gang rushing in, and with uh, Giles's immortal line, uh, "Anya, Tara, she needs backup." Yeah, of course she does. <laughs> um, and then Buffy um, doing like the, the the crazy dances because she, you know, there's just so much in her that she can't get out, and as she's, you know, literally. Well, first she reveals to the group that she thinks she was in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I just love the devastated reaction shots that we get, especially from uh, Willow. Yeah, I mean, once again, when Willow cries, we cry. That's the rule. And they're, she's, they're... Allison Hannigan is so flawless when it comes to showing pain and horror on her face. That is a that is a gift of hers that literally no one else in the industry has been able to use. Yeah. Like, I, I think I, I think she I only does comedy now. <laughs> I, I think I've mentioned this uh, on my previous appearances, but 
most of these actors, no one has ever been able to use them except gut punch. Um, but then Buffy starts doing the crazy dances. She starts uh, smoking, and I love that we it keeps cutting to to Sweet, who's literally on the edge of his seat and just just with excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, and before she can spin out of control, Spike shows up, and the the moments between Buffy and Spike here are maybe my favorite of the episode. Um, you get Spike singing things like um, life isn't bliss, life is just this, it's living. Yeah. Um, and to, I, I won't get too uncomfortably personal here, but several years ago, I kind of, I, I kind of hit like a personal rock bottom um, before before my now wife and I were together, I, I kind of hit like a personal rock bottom. And so, of course, the thing that I did to get me out of this depression, which might seem crazy because so much of Buffy is depressing, um, but I, uh, I just dove into Buffy. I just started watching random episodes of, of Buffy um, to, to make me feel better. And putting on Once More with Feeling and seeing the way that Buffy is so clearly depressed in a clinical sense um, and she's not been able to talk about it with anyone I I just related to that in general and watching her basically try to kill herself yeah. at the end of this episode only for Spike to stop her and have have those lines um, it, it just, yeah, it just, it really on a personal level was incredibly meaningful to me. Uh, it's, and it, yeah, it, it's moments like that between those two actors and those two characters. And, and I've, I've talked about this many times on the podcast before, but the fact that James Marsters played more soul and spike than was originally intended. And that's why the character became what he became. Um, but that is why it is so difficult for me to let go of my diehard spuffy, my, my diehard shipper, my inner shipper. Like I see mo So I feel like I finally had a breakthrough on this rewatch where I've, I've finally sort of accepted what this episode is at maybe hinting at. I mean, some people would say it's flat out saying, but I'll say hinting at with the very end, the coda and the, the, the kiss shot and all that. Um, I, I've accepted over gradually accepted over the years that yes, Buffy and Spike not right for each other. I I understand that, but I fought against that for so long, and it's because of the the genuine moments that we get like that, and the 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 pain that both of them, but particularly for me, James Marsters gets to portray uh, in in his inner struggle with whether or not he loves Buffy and and so on and so forth. And yeah, so that moment is a high is a high point for me in the episode. Yeah, so I mean, apart from the, I, I don't want to get into the, into what Spike does at the very end of the season. That's right. a different conversation. Yeah. But and you know, clearly you're right. They are not right for each other. I loved watching them together, but they they are not right for each other. But still, I, I think you know sometimes you you're you become in a relationship. You get in a relationship with someone who is perfect for you in that moment because they 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 save you or they reveal to you something about yourself 
and you know that you can't stay with them because it just won't work, but they're important for you at that moment. Yeah. And I very much think that Buffy and Spike fall into that category. Agreed. Um, but yeah, just the, uh, something to sing about, I think is, um, I, I, I've, in the, in the aftermath of, of my personal experiences and, and watching, uh, this episode, I, I don't want to say that, uh, one episode of a, of a TV show saved my life or anything, but I very much felt like, um, it kind of felt personally like a turning point for me, like, like, okay, it's time to, it's time to stop wallowing, time to stand back up. Um, and, and yeah, so, so it's just, it's very meaningful to me. And I, and I got all like, um, ambitious at the time. And I was like, I want to write one of those academic essays that people are always <laughs> writing about Buffy. And I even, I came up with a, a, a title, um, uh, self-immolation through song. Okay. And I, I so badly, like I had all of these thoughts about the way the show portrays, unflinchingly portrays Buffy's depression, the way, you know, she she basically tries to kill herself, uh, blah, 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 but it, it never happened. So now I'm here. Well, I where do we if, go from here? Well, I go here. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but uh, some of my guests and listeners include members of the Whedon Studies Association, which is a nonprofit academic organization devoted to the study of the works of Joss Whedon and his associates. I could perhaps put you in contact with some people if you want to mm. pursue this academic writing career. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate the offer. We'll we'll see. I'm still. I suppose I'm still interested. Have your people call uh, my people. Well, yeah. Well, well, I'll get in touch. Okay. Um, so yeah, we have to talk about where do we go from here. Um, yeah, well, we have to talk about Xander. Before where do we go from here? All right. Let's well, I do guess it. Let, 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 let's let's round out the musical numbers. Um, so you get the reprise of what you feel, mm-hmm. um, which I love. That ends with "See You All in Hell." Yeah. Um, it, it, it also it also is one of those classic songs that that provides the title of the episode. <laughs> right. Um, and then you've got. Uh, where do we go from here which you know everybody joins hands and then immediately breaks apart that's another chill moment for me i love the way that plays yes i totally agree and then you as the magic wears off you get spike who like looks at his hand and is like what what am i doing no <laughs> yeah and just it just walks out and he tells uh he has the line of get your kumbayas out yeah uh which i love um and then there's the coda between Buffy and Spike. And well, before, just the... before we talk about the coda, we should mention, again, we're not going to break any new ground here. This has been covered, but I feel like we should say it on the podcast, talking about that, I called it the chorus line earlier, but you said the characters line up and they all take hands. Mm-hmm. And so the order that everyone is lined up in, I alluded to it earlier with Spike and Buffy at one extreme and Tara and Willow at the other, but it goes Spike, Buffy, Dawn, Giles, Anya, Xander, Tara, and Willow. So... Willow is almost as far away from Buffy as it is possible to be. Dawn is technically the only connective tissue between Buffy and the rest of the traditional Scooby gang at this point. Um, and yeah, I mean, I don't supposedly there's a whole color scheme at work there uh, that the, the costume department, the costume designer worked very hard to have all the characters in specific colors that mm-hmm. are a spectrum along the line and that each character's colors says something about their state of mind. I'm not, as I, I don't know enough about color theory to talk about that, but that is supposedly there. Um, 
Yeah. Nice. Um, and so then we do get the coda out in the alleyway with the great big sloppy makeout kiss. I love how um, it, I love how it cu- it cuts to the coda scene on as, with the rest of the group singing um, the curtains close on a kiss. God knows we can see the end is near. <laughs> yes, yes. So great. It's, and so then we literally, you know, we get the big, you know, the end in big red Hollywood letters and the, the curtain literally closes like in Moulin Rouge, mm-hmm. um, which I think um, did uh, did Moulin Rouge come out the year before this or the same year? Uh, hold on. I've got to I've got to look this up real quick. Um, this was 2001, I said. Uh, this so, was so November was, so was, 2001. So, so is Moulin Rouge. Okay. Uh, Moulin Rouge was in May of that year. So it's possible he added that as a, a tip of the hat to, uh, yeah. to, to, I, to, I mean, obviously he wouldn't have had to seen, to have seen that movie to come up with that idea, but, right. um, so yeah. And then, and then it's over and now we have to talk about Xander. Well, hang on one, one more <laughs> thing about the coda. One more thing about the coda. I said that I, I'm, slow gradually making my peace with what the coda of this episode is trying to tell us Mm -hmm. what I mean by that. And this was discussed in the music sound and silence um, is that the, so while my, my unashamed inner shipper impulse is to view that final scene uh, as sort of a romantic victory where they finally, well, Buffy finally admits her feelings or whatever. uh, It's actually kind of the opposite of that because neither character is singing what they feel for or about the other person they are repeating lyrics from each of their prior solos um they are not harmonizing with each other um they're not sharing lines although they do both come together on the word alive or feel i think they come together on the word feel but basically the the suggestion there is that unlike say with Xander and Anya, they're not harmonizing on their own shared experience and feelings for each other, whether those are good or bad. These are two characters who are just looking for any port in a storm at this moment. I love it. Yeah, that did not occur to me. Because you're right, the, the two songs do mesh so well together, but they're still they're still out of sync. Yeah. All right. Okay. So Xander. Speaking of out of sync, <laughs> um, I hate this. I hate it. <laughs> You you hate having to point out Xander's uh, failing I, again. I, I hate that Xander. I don't hate having to point out Xander's failings. I've come to peace with that, um, or I've come to terms with it. But I hate that. I, I just hate the whole idea that it was Xander. Yeah. Because it, and, and I, I think I especially hate that he completely gets away with absolutely no consequences. Yeah, that's the big deal for me because. He he always gets away with stuff like the the show is inconsistent about making a big deal about normal human death, about like humans dying in the course of the Scooby's battles against darkness or whatever. And killing a human is like the unforgivable sin that the show never lets you get away from. And, and you know, unless it does, unless it does, which this is at least the second, probably third or fourth example of Xander being at least peripherally, I would say much more than peripherally uh, responsible for the deaths, the deaths of humans. And he doesn't even get a, a side eye for it in this instance. 
I it's played as a joke. It's meant to it's meant to be the punchline to the fact that they had been setting up it was dawn all along People... right as as a weird way to resolve the her pointless kleptomania right through line right um yeah i, I think uh honestly I, th- this this is my this is my take on a lot of things with xander i think the reason the show consistently doesn't know how to I don't know exactly the phrase I'm looking for here the reason that Xander keeps getting away with stuff is because I think I simply think it's uh, that's Whedon's blind spot so much of himself is put into Xander and he's on the record as saying that that I don't think he can step outside of himself to realize what a shitheel Xander ultimately is hmm I, I, mean, yeah, he, I mean, he is he is the um, the nerdy, straight white guy, right? R- who has some pretty sexist assumptions here and there. Uh, you you had alluded earlier, or we together alluded to the nascent homophobia that has been present in television shows, including Buffy, from time to time. There's there's a hat tip to it again here. Oh right, about you know him asking, "Do I have to be your bride?" Yeah. Um, though I do like sweets. That's tempting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he's a Broadway yeah. performer. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a tendency, I think, to hand wave away a lot of this stuff, not just on Buffy, but you know, any other shows of that era as just well. It was you know, it was the '90s or it was the early 2000s or whatever. I don't think that's a good excuse. Um, but I do think it was an acceptable thing at the time. Um, I, I think it, it's, I, I think in, in one sense, it's almost a have your cake and eat it too kind of thing where they, Whedon and some of the others have, uh, been on record repeatedly, particularly early in the series about how, um, Xander is the point of view character. Xander is meant to represent Whedon in in some respects this is this is almost Xander's show uh but then he gets away with stuff and I feel like there's a certain amount of hand waving where it's like well he's not really the main character he's the comic relief like we're not like it's not worth pursuing that storyline with him because he's not the main character if this was Buffy of course it would be a, a thread that we followed but who cares it's just Xander but there are in as much as the show consistently avoids having Xander face consequences for his actions, Xander is consistently making questionable <laughs> decisions and doing questionable things. So I think there is an arc there, but I don't I don't necessarily think is an intentional one or one that they ever meant to explore, which I think is really a bummer. And I know we try to avoid going there in all of my appearances on this show so i i won't won't really go there but i think we've broke we've broken the f-bomb rule so go ahead i well i think i think xander is the rosetta stone to understanding joss whedon i mean i'm sure that's true in in a lot of ways so i i don't think it's i think it is an accident that they keep doing this with xander and he keeps getting away with it but i think that's very revealing yeah it's all i will say on that matter (laughs) Another w- reason why it's consistently frustrating for me is one of one of my biggest issues at the time with season six was the behind the scenes nonsense and the meta 
stuff that was going on where Spike by this point had evolved to what a lot of us fans believed was a certain type of character. And some of the writers on staff disagreed with that portrayal and so actively took steps to readjust, to sort of course correct by having Spike do consistently horrible things as if to thumb their nose at the fans and say, see, he's not a good guy. You shouldn't like him. Um, so that's an example of the the writer the various writers i know these i know these shows are broken in a writing room like the season is broken down so the the large beats are hammered out from the beginning and i'm sure joss is involved in those but in essence these are staff writers taking an opportunity to kind of make little course corrections so you could say that which they do all over spike but you could say that you know joss has a blind spot for xander but there are other writers involved here who have demonstrated their willingness and ability to course correct characters (laughs) and none of them seem to take the opportunity with xander that that's absolutely fair you know and i I think um it is important to realize that um most uh all filmed art is a collaborative effort i think tv is more collaborative than than film in mm-hmm. most cases. So it is important to to remember that it's not just Joss Whedon as the figurehead. And I mean, in season six, he wasn't really the figurehead. Right, right. Um, he was off doing Firefly um, or starting Firefly. Um, but I do still think that there it says something about how Xander consistently just avoids consequences for his awful shit. And I think I did mention this on a previous I mean, episode. I mean, he ate people. <laughs> he, he literally ate people. He literally ate people. Um, <clears throat> I think I mentioned this on a previous episode, but around the time that we started this podcast, so about 10 years ago, I actually wrote <laughs> a piece for our website back when we did that, that I wish I could burn from the internet. I won't do yeah, it yeah. because I, I, I don't like the idea of just erasing that stuff but hey, i let i let my london calling thing stand i didn't cut that out of the episode <laughs> so we got to stand by our stupidity yeah so i i had written a, a piece about how there was a film critic at the time who loved buffy but thought that you know xander kind of betrayed all of the claims of feminism that Whedon and the show make and i wrote this very uh i don't think it was nasty or, or offensive or anything certainly but I, I do think that it was very myopic and naive and I wrote this defense of Xander um, that she actually called me out on oh really? <laughs> or, or, or no I don't think it was her I think it was her um, her editor huh yeah yeah, yeah. and I just want to say that they're not listening to this but um, <laughs> I you know you were absolutely right I was completely wrong I, I do still I have affection for Xander of course. I mean, so do I. But he used to be like, you know, Spike was always my favorite character, but Xander was very close. Um, that that is not that is certainly not the case. I mean, in, in our <laughs> earliest in our earliest discussions as we were getting to know each other, like we met on a on a. Oh, yeah. Buffy, yeah, yeah. On, on a Whedon related message board. But in our early discussions, you made it clear that Xander was kind of kind of your guy that you obviously you loved Buffy and you loved Spike, but like, like Xander and, and in particular, I think you really held on and maybe you still do, but I know at the time you really clung to as one of the high watermarks for you personally, the end Uh of this season. 
the end of this season. The Xander's moment at the end of this season. Oh yeah, yeah. Which I do, I do still think is a great moment. Yeah. Um, but I do think that, yeah, I, I strongly identified with Xander at the time. I mean, at the time we met, you and I were, or you were old. I was, <laughs> I was fifteen. Uh, um, God damn it! And when we started the podcast, when I wrote that piece, I was twenty. And so I think as I'm about to turn 30, I have much, much different feelings on on not just Xander, but myself. And so I don't – I still see myself in Xander, but I don't like what I see. Which, the, the, the aspects of myself that I see in him, I don't care for. Which is good and fair. Like we should all – we should appreciate Xander. And I do. I appreciate – I give Xander yeah. a lot of grief on this podcast, but but I do appreciate him. But we should appreciate but, these characters yeah. that point out our own failings to us. Like that doesn't make them a bad character and it doesn't make us bad people. It just – Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean so. if nothing else, the Zeppo is still – of course, yeah. One of the highlights. I of mean, the show. come on, yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that's it. I didn't. Uh, I had some some favorite quotes that I didn't really get to call out, like um, in in the setup for standing the the Giles solo, uh, the sort of training montage. Um, Buffy has the great line uh, after she breaks that board. She's like, "I feel like I should bow or have honor or something." <laughs> <laughs> I like that line. Um, Spike, of course, gets uh, all sorts of great lines and lyrics. I mean, I hope she fries. I'm free if that bitch dies. Which, in my notes, just a behind the curtains peek at how obnoxious I can be. I did this as a joke. I, I attributed that line to Spike singing what we're all feeling. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you already mentioned life's not a song. Life isn't bliss. Um, yeah. What else would I want to pump you for? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> uh, um, Dawn, yeah. I, I also I got I have to give props to I, I, presumably Whedon uh, wrote this line where Dawn Dawn gets the eye rolling. Yes, the 15 year old can spend half an hour alone in her locked house. I mean, so glad that the show finally acknowledges she's not six she's a 15 year old she'll she'll be fine of course she wasn't of course she was she immediately she immediately got abducted but (laughs) but yeah no anyways um also the the episode begins with buffy uh drawing uh a picture which appears to be the view from the bottom of a grave oh shit you're right yeah right oh um uh, there is another musical number that we get to see a snippet of later on. Oh, in the later on. That's right. Yeah. Uh, in Selfless, which mm-hmm. uh, the song was also written by, even though he didn't write that episode, the song was still written by Whedon. Um, Mrs. Anya Emanuela Jenkins Harris or something like that. Yeah. Um, which has never been released on any soundtrack, I don't think. You, um, I'm sure there's an answer to this, and a, a smarter podcast host would know it. But uh, was that written by Whedon at the time and just cut out of this, or was it written for Selfless? I, I'm pretty sure it was written specifically for Okay, Selfless. Okay, yeah. Is um, that is that that's in season seven, right? Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. That, that's the next season. Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, anything else? Oh, we get the singing uh, mutant enemy guy at the end. Grog. 
<laughs> one yeah, one of a handful that. of times where the mutant enemy gets to do something different. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, there you go. It's 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 a great great episode. It is a super great episode. So uh, I'm glad you could join me to discuss this. I Absolutely. Mean, I'm sorry it took us three months to make it happen, but hey, it's okay. <laughs> these things happen. Uh, all right. So Arlo, I'm sure nobody cares, but uh, <laughs> where can the people find you? Uh, online. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Arlo Likes Movies. And uh, Paul, uh, you and I have a podcast together. A couple of them, actually. A, a couple, yeah. Um, yeah, so a little uh, cross promotion here um, is uh, our regular podcast that uh, Arlo and I co host is called Gobbledy Geek, and it is coming back in. We're recording the season 11 premiere in just a few days, actually, from the time of this recording, 11 seasons. We are kicking off the the 10th consecutive full year of recording a show together. Uh, And we're kicking the new season off with our discussion, along with our our friend, co-author, man about town, Eric Sippel. We're going to be discussing the final film in the nine-film Skywalker saga, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. We are. Uh, So that will... We're recording that uh, later this week, so it should hopefully be out by the end of this upcoming week. So, uh, and then we're and then we are off and rolling. Uh, we're going from a, a complete um, desert, a, a dead zone of podcasting, where Arlo and I have barely spoken on mic for a couple of months at this point. To we're diving right back in with recording something for one podcast or another practically every week for the foreseeable future. Um, we are also co-producing right now a, a collaborative fiction podcast called New Caliber and Chronicles, which ties into our uh, our superhero short story anthology, The Deli Counter of Justice, available on Amazon for 99 cents. Woohoo! Woo. Uh, and we're recording a new episode of that. Um, that will all drop on your collective ear holes at some point in the future. I haven't edited and, and, uh, completed every episode of that, but that's coming. Um, and yeah, what else do we do together? That's it, right? Well, that's all we can talk about right. on family friendly podcasts like this. Yeah. For legal reasons. That's all we can discuss anyways. <laughs> uh, so yeah, again, Arlo, thanks for joining me and I'll talk to you again, uh, next week, if not before. Absolutely. But, um, as for all of you listening at home, thank you so much. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, which is still active. I promise I, I'm the show is not dead. It's just called Cons with Dead. Um, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. Uh, while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. Um, help spread the word. If you've got questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on what we've been talking about, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at conswithdead or reach out to us on Facebook. Uh, just search for cons with dead. I, I had a good thing. I just ran with it the whole way next week, maybe question mark, uh, next episode. Uh, if my woefully rusty scheduling skills can be trusted at this point, uh, I'll be joined by assistant philosophy professor and Slayage, the journal of Whedon studies contributor, James Rocha back to discuss episodes 608 Tabula Rasa, 609 Smashed, and 610 Wrecked. So it's going to get uncomfortable mm-hmm. <laughs> next it time. It sure is. Yep. So until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. When does the end of-